Welcome back to the final installment of Onboards with Dave Parmenter. Today's episode also includes the voice of laminator Ryan Martz. Ryan is the son of Greg Martz, which is the founder of the famed Waterman's Guild, which has often been referenced in the preceding three parts of this series. Greg retired a couple of years ago, and Ryan has since taken over the business. I started working. My dad had me tearing out floors as soon as I was 16, and I could drive up here. I was basically tearing out floors. And then um, I think once I uh, graduated high school, I started working here part-time. And then within a year, I was here full-time. So full-time since 19, part-time since 16. Um, do you ever consider not going into the family business? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was doing, I, I don't know, I, I was kind of super into surfing at the time. Like when you're a teenager, like surfing was absolutely it. And so it seemed like a natural, like not many people get that opportunity to like just go into a shop and be able to do stuff. And I already know the reputation of our shop. So that was kind of cool. And I figured like, I mean, at the very least, you'd be able to grow upon that, you know, and just yeah. learn so much. So I thought I was super into art. My dad basically said um, he doesn't have a airbrusher on the premises. So he's like, get in there, learn how to do it. You know, you'll make $120,000 a year doing airbrushing, you know? I'm like, oh, 120000 I'm in. Quickly found out that was not even close to what you can do, but um, he got me in here. And then um, that's basically how it started, so. Did, uh, did he simply throw that number out just to entice you in? I'm like, sure. That I, I, I have no idea what that number was based on, but I mean, um, no offense to my dad, but he tends to throw some exaggerations <laughs> out there from time to time. But yeah, no, it was like 100,000, 120,000, something like that. And I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. And then like, I remember there was like a year, like I had been airbrushing for a while and I was like pretty good. I was working on like six different shops and I just, just dedicated like every minute of my life, you know, like work weekends, everything. And I think I came up with like 55, 60 grand tops, you right. know, like that. And that's just like, working your life away and not enjoying anything that year so yeah that's funny you should have had him uh, draft a contract yeah and guarantee yeah. That salary. <laughs> right, absolutely that would have been good a part of this episode is actually focused on the economics of board building so both ryan and dave parmenter will tease apart how the dollars are distributed when you purchase a surfboard Parmenter and I also get deep into imported surfboards, why board building was ever outsourced from the U.S. in the first place, what the strengths and weaknesses are of that business model, what are the economic, health, and environmental considerations of that method of manufacturing. Dave built SUPs in China for a year, so he's had first-hand experience in factories there. If you haven't listened yet to parts one through three, I'd encourage that you pause this episode, go back, and listen to those. They are available for free, as is all past 240 episodes of this show. You can find our entire archives on surfsplendorpodcast.com. We have five other shows in production, each with a different focus and format. The whole network is listener-supported with an assist from brands like Need Essentials, Spy Optic, and Visla. You can support via PayPal donation button on our website. And as a thank you for your support, Channel Islands is donating a surfboard, and any and all donors in the month of October will be entered to win it. One name will be randomly selected from that list of donors, and Channel Islands will gift you 
a rocket-wide built-in spine tech. The winner will only be responsible for shipping. I've actually been riding the rocket-wide the past couple of weeks in California and absolutely loving it. It's probably classified as a groveler. I'd been riding a fish all summer and was ready to add back a little bit more performance into my surfing. The rocket-wide fills the void kind of between the fish and a high-performance thruster. Again, it's a groveler. So you can get it with various tail shapes. I got mine with a swallow tail. The spine tech construction is a two pound EPS core. And if you've listened to this series, then you probably know that two pounds is a reference to the density. It means that the foam core weighs two pounds per cubic foot. The spine tech construction is technically stringerless, but it has this composite spine embedded into the deck for about three-fourths length of the surfboard itself. So they route out a little bit of the EPS foam, embed the spine tech composite spine, and then they lay up a few strips of carbon cloth on either side to add additional strength. The deck is then glassed with one layer each of warp glass and e-glass. The bottom has a pattern of carbon fiber as well, and then one layer of four ounce e-glass and the board is finished with super sap epoxy bioresin the whole package is meant basically to feel like traditional familiar pu flex but these modern materials are meant to last longer so not only will the board resist breakage but it'll retain pop and consistent flex indefinitely rather than going through the traditional life cycle of a board feeling real lively when you first get it and then feeling perfect for a period of time before kind of feeling dead and slow. So you can learn more about Spine Tech and the Rocket Wide on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. It's also where you can drop a donation in to be entered to win the board. I thank you for that and thank you to Channel Islands, of course, for the donation of the surfboard. By the way, um, you can order it to your specs if you win this board and CI will dial you in with the specific board that fits you best and then of course you will only be responsible for the shipping cost so thanks for the support and thanks for all the kind words regarding this series Parmenter has a real passion for sharing history and also for clarifying misconceptions about both history and board building so for us having this platform to share and for you to kind of help spread it virally has been really really cool I have plans for more of these multi part series one on fins one on sustainability more on various aspects of surfboards so that's where all of your support goes i know you get that uh, but just thank you for that anyway in part three of this series we focused on laminating and finishing a surfboard for clarification both of those things can simply be referred to as glassing You shape the foam and then you glass it, but in any scenario, only one person shapes the board. The job of glassing is sometimes broken into multiple specialized roles, with one person laminating, perhaps another hot coating, someone setting fins, someone sanding, someone else polishing. All those will be important to note as we break down the economics of where your money goes when you buy a surfboard. Each of those roles, of course, comes with a salary. So while we covered the glassing process in our last episode, Ryan and I will start our conversation with materials before getting into the environmental and health concerns of glassing, and then, of course, the economics of all of this. My name is David Scales, and this is part four of Onboards with Dave Parmenter and special guest Ryan Martz. Enjoy the show. She knows how to get away. She knows.
Can you tell me, first of all, what is fiberglass? What's it comprised of? Where does it come from? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, I know roughly that, you know, like, I don't know exactly what the strands are. I just kind of know what each cloth kind of has. Like, warp cloth has more vertical strands than horizontal strands. Uh, E-cloth is like a 50-50, so it's more pliable. Um, I don't know exactly what it's made of. Is there a lot of variation in quality between different types of brands? Do you only work with certain brands and not others? Does it matter where in the world that fiberglass comes from? I'm always trying to identify um, what people are talking about when they talk about a quality surfboard and how much of that is the materials and how much of it is the technique of you know manufacturing. So is there any consideration with brands or does everybody kind of produce good quality fiberglass at this point? You know what, as far, I think everything quality wise is, I mean, they're all kind of par, you know, you get what you, like S cloth always tends to be stronger than the regular E's and warps, um, Volan as well, but it's just, we're more in the cosmetic world here doing all the high end long boards with color work and stuff like that. So. Uh, like a cloth that I might not use, you know, for a certain reason is great on a clear, you know, but like when I add color to it, how it saturates, if it doesn't and leaves like little silvery, you know, in the cloth or like we have a thing with some of our Volan will like do weird stuff when it's underneath multiple layers. So, I mean, our, what we pick is based on just what gives us the best product, you know, visually and you know um durability got it what is volan it's boat builders cloth back in the day and before that's what they first used to lamb the polyurethane boards when they first came out but from everything i know is it was basically untreated unbleached you know because most boats got gel coated and all that stuff so it's just a dirtier cloth tends to be like um green when you lamb it and uh that's just basically it. And then once, you know, the whole polyester surfboard manufacturing went, then they started designing cloth specifically for that. And that's when we got into what we have now. So why do people still use Volan? Uh, a lot of stuff is just for the classic, I think. I mean, also the Volans come in a lot heavier cloths too. So the people that want the heavier cloths are, you know, more, they want that retro feel and everything. So why not have the exact thing that they used back in the day? So... That's my guess. It's more of a throwback thing. Yeah, I would think um, so. What is resin? What is it comprised of? Where does it come from? Uh, our resin, we use Silmar, and I know they're a company here in the United States. What it is exactly, again, I have no idea. How many different types of resin are there, or do you use here? We currently use three different types of resin, and then epoxy on top of that. But polyester resin, we have... We have the lamb resin and hot coat resin, gloss resin, and we have two different kinds of lamb resin. So, I mean, technically four. And then epoxy separate from that. Why do you have two different types of lamb resin? Just for the color. Uh, for clear boards, they put an optical brightener in it, and then it's not necessary for, because um, we're adding pigments and everything to uh, the color board, so not necessary. What does the optical brightener do? Uh, just gives it the a whiter. The uh, plain tends to have a more of a greenish, and then uh, that goes hand in hand with Volans. Um, so when you have that 
old school greener resin with the greener uh, cloth that gives that classic green Voland feel. So um, the optical brighteners for more modern shortboard and just anything that's clear. It just has a whiter look when it's on the board. Got it. What are the pros and cons of polyester resin versus epoxy resin? Uh, I don't know where to begin. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. Uh, I don't like working with, and I'll tell you that. The epoxy resin, I did it here for about 10 years. I just kind of stepped away and brought another guy in to kind of do it. Um, it's it's good. Uh, I like epoxy boards. It's just, it's it's a lot more problematic to work with. It, it tends to be very sensitive to any kind of environmental change, tons of things that could go wrong with it. It is, uh, it's, it is very strong. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a catch-22. It's like, it works really well for longevity, um, but it's a nightmare to work with. I just, from a board builder, not fun to work with unless that's all you do. If you have to jump back and forth between stuff, it's kind of a nightmare. In what ways is it difficult to work with? It's extra sticky. Okay. Extra sticky takes forever to cure, you know, unless you have like a perfect, you know, um, uh, room temperature or a heater or anything. Controlled like that. environment. Controlled environment. Thank you. Yeah. That's the word. When you sand it, it's, I don't know what it is about sanding epoxy fiberglass combo. It's the itchiest thing in the world. Hmm. It gets everywhere. So. The dust itself. The dust itself is just, it's its awful. So, like, come in the summertime, you have to be in a full, like, hooded sweatshirt, you know, with pant. Like, you just don't want it on you at all because it's awful. Mm-hmm. You, like, don't clean well enough and you put on a jacket, like, your jacket will be itchy for, you might as well throw that thing away. Really? Yes. Yeah, that's a problem. Um Perfect segue, actually, to what are the main health concerns for working in this environment? I don't know how to answer that. It's not ideal. It's it's a dirty job. It's dusty. It's uh, fumey. But, I mean, all the older generation is pretty much still around and kicking. Yeah, I, I've yet to see anyone go down due to cancer that I know of personally except for skin cancer, and that goes hand-in-hand with what we do outside of here. Sure. um, So the two concerns are what you're ingesting maybe into your lungs, and the second would be what your skin's exposed to? Yeah, I would think. And what are the ways to mitigate against those? And Uh, and can you fully mitigate against those? I wear a respirator whenever I lamb or do as much as I can. If I'm grinding doing anything with dust i highly recommend wearing a respirator um and wearing whatever you can protective like tyvex pants or suits um that being said i you still get a lot on you and it's uh i haven't noticed anything and like i said everyone's still ticking but it's not ideal so the respirator does that provide 100 percent um Safety. I like to think it does. I don't know. Okay. I mean, I'm just comparing it to what you just said about covering up your skin, where some stuff still always gets through no matter how yeah. well you cover. With the respirator, we don't know. It's, yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm sure I could look, but it's one of those things. Like I said, I've never done anything else, and this is where I am. I'm pretty deep now. So it's like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to not know. I mean, I mean, we 
you even hear about bakers getting you know baker's lung or whatever from just inhaling flour Mm -hmm. so there's um not a lot of environments that are 100 percent safe right but um i feel like because we're at least aware of the health concerns in the surf industry we do try to mitigate against it where other industries i'm i don't think they do like gardeners probably inhale more airborne particulate than you do yeah um and like i said we have proper ventilation systems and everything like um, so it's not, if you're wearing, you know, all your protective gear and then you just go outside, you should be fine. And generally like we land boards when they're done, we walk outside, go take a break, go take a breather. By then it's, I've found that like fumes are always the worst when the thing's actually going off. Like you might come in here and it smells like resin. Um, but it's, uh, it's th- what actually affects you is when it's, it's and still in the liquid form turning into the hard form that is when you'll get the effects of you know the lightheadedness the dizziness watery eyes all that stuff so yeah i mean when we're working with it it's mask be protected and then you know we'll walk out and once it kicks it's it's really not that bad what are the main environmental concerns what either working in this environment or that are generated from this environment not ideal. These are tough questions. I mean, we did, we know we're not making wonderful things here, you know. Well, but I think it's important to illuminate it because everybody just says like, oh, the surfboard surfboard manufacturing is dirty. And then these other entities come along and talk about, quote, sustainability. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any longitudinal studies. I'm not convinced about any of the sustainability conversation. Yeah, I don't know that anybody's ever done a really comprehensive um, study on any of that stuff. Right. So I'm really curious about what are the legitimate concerns. Um, we're aware. I mean, Parmenter said in this series that we're doing, he's like, look, you can't talk about sustainability. You can talk about conservation. Mm-hmm. We already know that we're doing something that is creating damage. We've accepted that. We know that we want to surf. So we're going to create surfboards. So now let's do it in the most responsible fashion. And so now we're talking about conservation rather than, you know, sustainability. Yeah, I would but, agree. Yeah. I but agree. what are the concerns? What um, is there airborne concerns? Are there things going into the atmosphere that way? Or is it all strictly waste that goes out? The more that I gathered from dealing with the EPA is more the waste that goes out. Okay. And the real problem tends to be anything that's liquidy or gel or goo. Once it's off and it's rock hard like candy and stuff, they said it's really, there's nothing to it, you know. goes into a landfill and slowly goes through the whole process and goes back into, you know, what it, what it does. Um, sorry, I don't know all the scientific terms for it. No, but, but that um, makes sense. But the big, the big things are the liquids because how they get absorbed in the soil or go in drains or into the ocean or anything like that. But once it's hard, it's pretty much off and not really toxic. And so do they mandate that nothing can leave the factory in liquid form or how do they handle that? Yeah, I mean, that's ideally, that's what it is. We we do everything here that we can do to combat that. Um, That is side note for a lot of the um, smaller factories. I can't speak on the behalf of all builders. Here we uh, definitely do everything that we can do. We 
put all our hazardous waste. It goes into a drum that gets picked up multiple times a year. goes to a facility where they do everything up to code. We pay. It all goes back to the EPA. Um, we have an acetone recycler here, which a lot of shops don't have. Um, that's huge because I know I've worked at shops. I'm not going to name names or anything, but I've worked at shops where I know they would just uh, pour foam dust in the old acetone and just let it get jelly hard and or not fully off but just not full liquid and throw it away and do stuff like that whereas like we absolutely um we have the recycler so we get probably i'd say 75 80 percent of our old dirty tone back and everything else just gets turned into that rock hard candy which you know we put into uh and we still put that into our hazardous waste bin and have that taken care of even though technically when it's rock hard it should be fine to go into the landfill are those things mandated by the epa or are those just self-imposed kind of both i mean the epa definitely wants you to like they don't require that you have an acetone recycler or anything but that's just it's it's good for us um like i we we know we're not you know helping the situation but we want to be as good as we can to you know not just openly abuse, you know. Um, I would imagine both the acetone recycling and the hazardous waste disposal is an added expense probably for the business. Uh, the recycling tends to work out. It caught, it's a big initial investment. Okay. And then um, like we actually get 75% back. So in the long run, it, it actually helps. Okay. Um, but the hazardous waste is definitely a cost. Okay. Parmenter mentioned that regulations in California are so tight that the days of kind of running a glass shop under the radar and off the radar of authorities are over. Like back in the, you know, certainly the 70s, but even 80s, 90s, there was a lot of small glass shops operating that nobody even knew about or the regulators didn't know about. Um, I was surprised to hear him say that those days are over. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think they're over. They're not over. <laughs> they're definitely not over. So you're running, you're obviously um, built to code. Mm. The city and the officials know that you're here. The EPA knows you're here and you're doing things to code. Yes. There there are factories that aren't doing yes, it to code. Yes, there are in, factories that because, aren't. Because we talk about California being the, um, I don't know, on the cutting edge of board building or certainly like producing quality surfboards that are known around the world and respected. Um, that's n- not to say that they're all produced to the same quality. Right. Is kind of what I'm curious about. Yeah. I, it's it, it would definitely be harder to open up a big name shop and just come out and do it. And I think, uh, but there are a lot of shops that are still around that have still been built and they might have gone under but they sold to somebody else and the facility itself is not up to code and if you don't register the name no one's coming to look right so if you're i mean that's another thing is just just having a business license i mean we're subject to you know shakedowns by the city you know for whatever they want to hit us for they want to charge us tax on everything that we buy for the factory that has nothing to do we already pay tax on but yeah, I, I was talking to um, the fire department when they came by, and I just asked because I know of other buildings or just how 
how do they come to come by our place? Do they just walk down the whole block and go door to door, or did they go down a list of you know uh, registered businesses and they uh, go down a list of registered business? So you don't register your business, they're not going to come, right? Unless you catch something on fire or someone reports you. But. Sure. Interesting. Um, another reason why I'm asking all this is just because that's all added expense, right? Right, it's yeah. all added expense for your business. And Absolutely. It, and it consumers then, of course, pay more for it. Yes. For the product. Final question is just, I wanted to, if you're comfortable doing it, to outline pricing. Let's just say that a board costs 800 bucks on the retail rack. What is the blank cost and profit margin for the shaper? What are the materials costs and profit for the glasser? Is there an industry standard kind of fair wage to pay a laminator per board, a sander, a polisher? I feel like we're not fully in that conversation. Like everyone's so varied across, and it depends on what you're doing, whether you're doing high performance short boards or you're doing high end, you know, color boards. Um, It's kind of all over the map. And a lot of people also get more for shapers, it varies drastically because however long they've been doing it, if they're overhead, you know, whether they're worth people wanting to pay the extra for it. And I, I feel everyone's worth, we don't, we don't make enough in this industry, you know, for what we do. So, uh, good on the people that, you know, charge and get it. So, um, is there a range that we can at least give listeners for a shaper? How much can a shaper, what is the range that a shaper might get paid on the low end per board? All the way up to whatever skip fry. I would say a low end shaper would get as low as fifty bucks per shape. Per shape, I'd say low fifty dollars. I'd say high could be anywhere. You know, John Pecks and guys like that get up to a thousand bucks or six hundred bucks a shape. Yeah. What would be? Let's give a range for what a laminator would get paid. And is that, are they paid per board or how does that work? Yeah, this industry, as far as I know, is mostly piecework. So everything gets per item or per board. To lamb a clear short board, you're anywhere from like 17, 18 to, if you're working somewhere great, a little over 20 bucks. Okay. And then per board. And how long does it take somebody to do a board? It all depends. Can they do it in one hour? Yeah, they could. So or, but it, it, like people in the beginning, like when you first start out, it's you definitely. I mean, at least here we were learning, you know, trying to be good before you got your numbers, and that's with any stage in here. You're, sure. it's gonna, there's going to be a learning curve. It's going to take a little while, um, and so yeah, you definitely don't make as much until you know you have some time and some boards under your belt, and that all comes with, with just time. Right. Uh, what about sander? Uh, board price range. Same thing. I mean, it can go from I'd say. I'm sure there's people paying nothing. I, I don't know the extra low stuff. I make sure we pay our guys really well here. I've kind of gone around the industry, and I know we're at the top of paying people. Yeah. But uh, I would say 15 is low. Uh, 20 would be kind of average for a sand-only shortboard, and then everything just kind of goes up from there. So that $800 shortboard that's on the rack, you're giving the shaper 50 bucks on the low end, maybe 100 150 kind of for an average price. Mm-hmm. Laminator's making 20 bucks. Sander's making 20 bucks. What other roles and prices 
other than the materials cost. Hot coders making another, you know, roughly ten to fifteen dollars. Uh, you got the fin guy installing boxes at anywhere from a dollar to three dollars per box. Uh, you're paying for the boxes to go in. Uh, if you're if the board's being glossed, then you're glossing it and then you're sanding and polishing it as well. Uh, that's an extra cost. Um, so you're looking at maybe 200 to 300 bucks in labor costs alone? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, not factoring in, of course, material costs yeah. and overhead for running the business. And, and that's and the other one is the overhead. That's the huge one that no one takes into consideration, I would say. And I would say that actually fluctuates maybe the most as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as those other things fluctuate, you know, if you are up to code. Yeah. And depending on what city you're doing it in. Yeah. I mean, it all it, everything kind of comes back to the shaper. Ultimately, it's if the guy is doing it in his garage and is happy with the level amount of boards that he's doing out of his garage, then great, he can charge a lot less. But if he has to go have a retail space and a showroom to do all his stuff, then his stuff's going to cost more. And that's just the way it goes. And if you start getting into computer cuts, then you're paying more. And if you're hiring guys to outsource, like the piece of the pie just keeps getting smaller and smaller. So it's, it's all just depends on, you know, who you're buying your board from. Right. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you, Ryan. His glass shop is in Santa Ana, California. It's the Waterman's Guild, founded in 1983 by Ryan's father, Greg Martz. Among their current list of clients are Almond Surfboards, Ryan Lovelace, Night Train, Gatto Heroi, and of course, Aleutian Juice, which is Dave Parmenter's label. And here's Dave with more on pricing. Yeah, you buy a blank for 60 bucks, and, and then based on each shaper would probably pay himself a certain amount of money to... What's the fair rate? Uh, it's It varies so much. I mean, you get a guy like Skip Fry that costs like, you know... Like no, but a, we're talking 6-0 shortboard on the rack okay, at a Okay, for a $700 board. Yes. So if, if it's somebody that is owns the label himself and isn't yes. just getting paid, you're probably... 
you're probably getting lucky to pay yourself a hundred bucks okay. to shape the shape the board. And 60 then sixty bucks for the blank, hundred bucks for labor for the shaper. Yeah. Okay. Then there's sandpaper logos, uh, all the other stuff that you have to pay. Some materials cost. Rent, rent for your thing, government stuff, uh, respirators, sand. I mean, all that stuff that you, you that all has to be factored in. I mean, you probably it's like a dollar, a dollar fifty a board just for lambs for the rice papers you sure. put on there. Uh, then, the, the, but the glassers really have to bear the weight in this because I can just go buy a blank and I can make a customer a board. All my needs and, and tools and everything are fairly static. They're just there. I don't need to buy. They have to have resins, cloths, uh, all, the, all the, the hardeners, pigments. They, everything, they have to have FCS stuff. They have to have future fin stuff. And they have to have it or they're going to lose a sale or boards are going to just get stuck in irons. A lot and more raw material. And, and so they're lucky. Maybe they're getting net 15 or something like that. Or, or, but, and then they're dealing with... Uh, surf shops maybe that are that don't pay them right away right which is kind of standard in the industry they're notorious for just oh, i'll get net net 180 you know or something like that. right yeah so they have to get all these materials i don't i just have to sure. get a blank so they're the ones that are in the real crunch so if you go to a contract glass shop after that so let's say 175 bucks or even 200 dollars for a, a blank and a shape and all the overhead on the shaper side and then you go to a glasser and you're going to get a uh clear sanded hot coat removable fin system without the fins included you're going to be paying anywhere from 180 to 200 plus for that with no extras or anything so no. you're up to 400 yeah and from there there's uh that's that's just like the bare bones right so then if you own the label then like if you paid yourself to shape the board that's that, but what? It, then there's profit too. Like yeah. you're not just you do you double no, dip or anything like that. So, so the board let's four hundred. And that's let's and that's say. efficient. No, if the bigger yeah. you get, yeah. that's a garage or backyard thing. The bigger you get, the more then you have to pay for advertising. You have to have, you know, uh, all the accounting comp, involved. Everything. It's all like it, it just goes up. So Taxes. when you see, so when you see, and then there's the markup too. And and I think most surf shops. It's been a while since I've been involved in that in that thing, but I think most surf shots would be pretty happy to make like you know fifty to seventy five bucks markup on a board. Okay. It used to be, and it might have changed now because there's more of an implied value in surfboards because they look so nice now, and everybody you know everybody's a surfer. But um, they used to be kind of looked at for a lot of surf shops, at least in this modern era, with the, when there's so much markup on apparel and stuff like that is loss leaders or right. a prestige item right. just that you, you had it because hey i'm a surf shop here you know i'm not making any money on these boards but they're here and they're getting you in here to buy wax and leashes and stuff like that so 400 bucks let's say in raw materials cost and overhead between the shaper and the glasser retailing for 700 so that 300 dollar kind of delta is divided up between those three parties well, in I, terms of profit. i would think that that would only exist for somebody that's doing it on a shoestring i don't think that would those margins would not exist for but even those margins aren't they're not gaudy i mean those are slim margins as is you know well then there's then okay being in the surfboard trade whether you're glassing or you're a shaper especially if you're a glasser is it's all about crisis management it's all about damage control. There's not a day that doesn't go by that something doesn't just come unhinged. You know, it's entropy. You know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And those things eat you a lot, too. Things like having to redo something. Absolutely, or, and, yeah. Uh, 
transportation, getting, you know, just people that wanted a board by a surf trip and it doesn't get done because the glasser's cousin's uncle's brother got bit by a dog and had to go bail it out. You know, I mean, there's just all these things, surfer labor. And, uh, and like you said, there's not much of a cushion. But um, I think that there's... Gordon Clark always said that the guys that did really well you know, financially and surfboards are very small and efficient or the very big guys. I think the guys in the middle are, are the ones that are always struggling. And that seems to be the case today. Yeah. In, I mean, this probably fits under the heading of the economics as well. We were going to talk about um, um, China manufactured boards and the definition of pop-out boards. Yeah, that's, and all a, that great, sort of that's a great point. Um, because that's that's kind of a thing where you want to like kind of compare and contrast all these different types of composite structures. Because people say pop out, right? And under that term, there's there's this huge gamut of surf craft. And and the thing is, there's no such thing as a pop out, really. There's so I've understood pop out to mean from my youth. Yeah. People started using it. It was always a pejorative. Yeah. It was a negative, and it was meant to refer to something that wasn't hand shaped, essentially. It was like, oh, that board didn't come from a shaper down the street whose label, you know, who, whose name right. I know and is on the label. It came from usually Asia, mass produced without like there's no customization. That's the pop yeah. out component is no customization. That's an over. That, but what's funny is that's kind of an oversimplification, oversimplification. Okay. So. So what is the definition? Well, there, there really isn't anything as a, the only thing that's really a pop out in this is. It, which means like something that's just popped out of a mold and ready to go. That doesn't exist. Blanks are like pop-outs. Our blanks are pop-outs. Right. Um, there were some boards, like there were, I remember you were talking with Greg Martz on one of the shows where you're talking about these kits, the surfboard kits that used to exist in the 60s, 70s. Well, one of the ones that he didn't mention was Dave Sweet had these. They had all these different kits uh, that you could buy. And, or there was, there was even, uh, types of surf long boards that were they called pop-outs that weren't really even pop-outs they were just mass-produced boards they were just kind of done assembly line and then there was some remember this one that was called a Huntington Hawaii and it had a like a plastic uh, skin that had an injection molded EPS into it so there's really no bond it was just the pressure of whatever was expanding inside this thing interesting yeah it was a, yeah I remember I cut it apart and I shaped a, a, another board out of it wow um, but and I wouldn't even call that a it's like an injection molded thing would right. you call that a pop-out so yeah. So what's going on now is we have a vastly different, huge array of when people say pop out. When people say pop out, they're referring to boards from like Asia or China or something like that. Um, I don't really see that exists. So you, so we have to we have to kind of discriminate between the type of molded composite boards that we see coming from like Cobra, which makes SurfTech boards what is cobra cobra is is a factory in in thailand that they did i think like 90 percent of the world's sailboard and wakeboard things before the this boom hit the surfing thing hit them and they had mastered this whole construction process that um and actually randy french who was the founder of surf tech was working on these types of boards when he was uh up in the pacific northwest doing sailboards and he was doing some of these boards for rusty and some other top shapers back in the late 80s I believe or early 90s the same construction where you have a lightweight like EPS core with a very thin eighth inch thick sheet of nine pound density divinisil that is 
wrapped around that core with layers of glass and resin and molded under heat and pressure. What is Definicel? Definicel is, is it's a type of high density foam. It's a, okay. Yeah. Is it a polyurethane yeah. foam? No, I believe it is a. Uh, it's in the polyester family, I believe. It's but the high de- Clark Foam used to sell high density foams, and they use it in marine applications. They used to make fins out of it. It's malleable. In, a, in an eighth inch sheet, it is. Okay. Yeah. So it's a super thin skin. So, so what the the way that so the way that those boards are built is they have like say a clamshell mold of, of a given model. They have a EPS shape that is a replica of the master, whatever master shaper made that blank. It is machine shaped and the tolerances don't have to be perfect because one pound EPS is very compressible. So in a mold, it almost pays to have it maybe a little more oversized because you're gonna get a better bond with the parts. So, and they have their own uh, proprietary thing I probably don't want to get into it too much but they so what their what their boards are is a sandwich of that super lightweight core with a layer of fiberglass and resin with the 1 8 inch divinacil wrapped entirely around it like in this super hard you know like monocoque fuselage and then another layer of glass and then they have their fill coat and then they have some sort of acrylic like spray that you know gives them that look right those boards when they're made like that there's like 40 or 50 man hours in that, which is probably more than our surfboards here, you know, in that. So it's a very complex thing, and it's, it's a very good way to build surfboards for large framework surfboards or paddleboards, sailboards, where you have a larger core-to-skin ratio. So this is an interesting thing about surfboards or, or sailboards is that the, the more volume that the board has, the bigger it is you actually, they start to get lighter. Because at some point, like if you take a 6.0 kind of like Kelly Slater pro level board, and then you take an 11 foot stand-up board or something that's 28 inches wide and almost five inches thick, there's a greater ratio of that lightweight core to the skin, to that skin where all the weight is. So it's not for twice as much volume, it's not two times heavier. No, exactly. It's probably yeah. three times the volume, actually. Yeah. And, that, and so they actually can get lighter. So I've always felt that that type of construction is, is, is a really good way to build those you know, large corridor, that, that really big oversized surfboard. I, as a matter of opinion, I don't like how shortboards feel like that. Longboards a little bit better. Some longboards built like that are, are, are pretty good because they have a different feel and they're very strong. So now there's less customization in that model. Than of course, two, right? that's the problem. There's less customization. So I'm not, I'm just giving you the, the I'm not giving you my opinion no, of, of the course. boards. I'm just telling you how they're made and that we can't tar them with the same brush because these boards are very complex structures. They're made very well. The reason that they're overseas is not because of the expertise or because they have something we can't do there. We have the expertise. We have that ability to do it here. It's done because it's cheaper to build them there. And in a lot of those countries, they don't have the regulations. They don't have OSHA. They don't have the EPA. Hell, we don't have EPA anymore. But uh, it's that's the reason why it's there, you know. Now, I've I've been to China. I've seen it. We, we getting involved with uh, the stand-up thing, which we pioneered with C4 Waterman for a long time. I tried to build the boards in Hawaii. I didn't want to go overseas, um, but to withhold that from my partners and be, we were already overrun by people that were gonna do it anyway. No one would build the boards for us in Hawaii. No one wanted to know about it. And this is back in 
pretty early on in the game, right? Like we started doing it in 2002, formed C4 Waterman in 2006, and it wasn't until a couple years later that everybody jumped on the bandwagon. But that gave me a chance to go to China and see how a lot of the other types of boards are built. So you have that that surf tech cobra kind of construction, which I think is the gold standard of that molded composite construction, where they're because the the key thing in that is that fuselage of high density foam that is around the EPS core. Now, a lot of the other boards you see, there's this buzzword epoxy. Oh, I want an epoxy board. You go to the big box stores here and you see uh, an epoxy stand up board or something like that. That's not made that way. Usually what's happens over there is that they just take regular one pound EPS foam and they have all these guys that are just shaping, looking at a master. Not even, a lot of times it's not even done on a CNC machine. And I mean, I've seen these guys work hard. There's guys over there don't know anything about surfing, don't know what these things are for. And they're in there just power shaping with the wrong tools on crappy stands and poorly lit bays, these boards over and over and over. And then they're hand glassed with just regular fiberglass yarn and epoxy resin. And the problem with those is it's hard to get them watertight anywhere. When you do boards like that, they, uh, there's a lot of things that when you build boards like that without that intervening layer of that kind of fuselage around it of the high density foam, they, they tend to want to be vacuum bagged or anything, but they, the, because there's so much air volume and it's so light in, inside and that when epoxy or any resin starts to go off, it kind of uh, exotherms or it heats up and it starts to draw air out of the core and so you get pin air so a lot of people will go to a big box store and go oh wow a stand-up epoxy stand-up or epoxy is a brand name right to them they don't know it's just the resin right and it's like wow six hundred dollars of the paddle and they get it and then they don't realize that they get it in the water and they get it in the sun and it starts sucking in water so and are those pop-outs no if somebody had to hand shape it somebody yeah. had to hand it's just done in a place where labor's cheap and people just take the stuff and dump it out in the field i mean it's it's incredible it's dickensian when you look at how things are built in places like some of those countries. And so there are no real pop-outs. Even, the surf, even if you go and you see a, a nice looking polyurethane, polyester, someone bought a brand name or something, those are still hand, largely hand-shaped, hand-laid-up boards. Even if the, the foam is uh, shaped on a machine and finished, on a, on a CNC and finished, none of this is automated there's still right. people over there the, the rub in this is that you're relying on cheap labor with no, no you know they have no safety net right so you referenced vacuum bagging what is vacuum bagging and where does that apply in this equation well vacuum bagging in this the, i think they would do on some of these con better constructions that we're talking about with the molded composites they they do an end run around the vacuum bagging by having these molds these two-part clamshell molds that go and they seal everything together and vacuum bagging does the big thing you put a polyethylene bag that's you know made for this thing around a board with pre-laid out parts like your glass and resin some and it's so it's pre-impregnated and everything's laid up and then with you the resin catalyzed and yeah all everything's that. ready to go everything's you you, you do it you wet and, it all out wet it all out and then it's Wrap the then bag. you have a vacuum that has a uh you know these different regulators and different things that get excess resin or air out of there and you, and it, you just suck it all together and so what's good about vacuum bagging is it gives a really good bond because you get a real good adherence of that adhesive or the resin and the glass to the foam and it gets rid of excess resin so you have a really light really light board 
And so when you go to the next phases, like you just, I mean, you get rid of a lot of extra weight. It's just, it's hard to do. Not everybody does it. It would be nice if everybody could do one in their backyard, but it's, a, it's definitely a skill. Is there a downside? Uh, no, I don't think so, other than the fact that you're using epoxy. I mean, usually, because most, most people would be doing that with EPSs and things like that. Why can't you do it with poly? You could, but why would you? The foam, the polyurethane foam's already so strong, it doesn't really need, I mean, you wouldn't really need that. You're usually doing it to do more complex structures, or you're doing EPS and epoxy and... Um, or sometimes you're doing it with veneers if you're going to put a like a bamboo or something like that but most polyurethane boards are already ahead of the game just using a, a good quality resin and a good glass schedule like it's kind of like gilding the lily i mean you could and it would help but once again most surfboards are made because they're cheap and easy to make and one of the things like i said earlier is that you know gordon clark always said no matter what, like materials and everything like that says shape and design trump everything. Said all things being equal, a better designed and better shaped board is going to work better regardless. So I think one of the, one of the reasons why I like polyurethane foam and, and the current culture of how we build them is with polyester resins is that it is, I'm more of a designer and I like to change the design and make boards that work better. And I like to do it from board to board, not only for myself, but for my customers and clients. Right. And it's when you have a, a system like that that's really easy to do and you have a foam company like US Blanks that it's really easy to get custom blanks with custom rockers, readily available with high quality and everything. I just find that I'm, I'm easier to keep up on those design cycles. So that gets us to the point of so what are the downsides of these um, molded composite companies that, um, that make these molded boards you know, like SurfTech? The thing is, is you start to get into like the, the, the big three Detroit automakers where they, they enforce their model years. So for me, it's a, as a backyard shaper, it is a benefit and an advantage to change the design overnight. And I can do it immediately. I can do it. I can change it. I can change glassing stuff with Greg Martz and Waterman's Guild and all my glass. I can change that immediately to react to design changes. Right. Those companies, once they get a, a, a master plug, a design, they have to market it. They pay the shaper royalties. It goes into production. They have a mold for it. It's not in their interest to really change it. Now, for stand-up boards or long boards that don't really change as fast as short boards, that's one thing. But yeah. But so what I always worry is it's a danger when there's an obstruction to design innovation like right. that. And to be honest, we've seen with a lot of those companies, what the team writers are writing on tour or elsewhere are poly models that are made just like the boards that you're making. And then they're refining that yeah. to then go make the mass produced. True, but it still costs them money to retool. So that, I mean, that's a good no, point. They're, they're riding those boards. But I think that's, it's yeah. actually a kind of a bait and switch in a sense because what the consumer is watching their favorite team rider ride in a contest isn't necessarily, that might be what's on, available on the market a year from now, but that's not what they go to the shop tomorrow and buy. No, and, and it'll, in one way that like people are always talking about the, uh, you know, I remember, you know, Greg Knoll always asking me like what I thought about it and I should, you know, write something about it and do something about that whole molded thing. And this is like 20 years ago. Um, but I just said, no, I, it's the easy thing. Like even with C4 Waterman, 
when we had people coming in and copying what we were doing or uh, beating us to market because they had a better distribution and business model or something, I just said, we'll just out-innovate them. I'll just come up with something new that will make everything they have obsolete. And that's the best way to do it. And I still believe that. I still think the best thing, the best competition or the best way to obstruct a real or perceived threat by this type of board manufacturer is to just innovate. Make their boards obsolete. Make that whole, all those warehouses full of short boards or long boards obsolete with better design. And if I can't do it uh, in a way that's recognized around the world, at least I can just do it for my customers. Right, right, right. What are the reasons that people are doing veneers on boards and vacuum bagging them in? Is there, is it a strength thing? Is it strictly an aesthetic thing? Is it a performance thing? Well, it's both. It, it's in all. There, we always looked at. We used a lot of bamboo veneers on our um, molded composite stand-up boards at C4 Waterman, and that was it was a uh, cheaper and more natural alternative to carbon fiber. Oh, okay. And one of the things that we would tell people, or that it's that's said around the industry, is that bamboo is, is nature's you know carbon fiber, and it's renewable. Right. And it does and it does look good. It's easy to work with, non-toxic. Okay. But it does the same thing. It just adds it adds to or reinforces the the basic skin of a surfboard. I guess as you're saying it, I, I have seen it as an entire veneer over a board. But mm-hmm. have we see carbon used in strips to strengthen the tail and things like that? Is bamboo used in the same way? Just in it, strips? It, it probably could be. In the type of boards that we're talking about, where like. You know, surfer Joe goes down and orders a board or buys a board at a shop for ordinary surfing. You're probably not going to see it as much. Um, yeah, and, I can't think of having seen um, it. But when you start getting into these uh, constructions that use, you know, molds under heater pressure or use vacuum bagging, then it becomes more viable. Okay. But, um, you know, the thing about the, the I just want to emphasize why these boards, like I'm not, I, I am a proponent of how these boards are built, some of the better ones. The, uh, you know, the ones we're talking about, like with the, the high density foam and everything's really, I mean, that's the gold standard like that. The, there's a lot of other ones that just kind of ride the coattails of the buzzword of epoxy. And I just want to make it clear that when you, there's no such thing as an epoxy surfboard. Epoxy is just the resin. And of that, there's many different types of resin. And then there's what cloth you're using, what kinds of cores. I mean, you've got polyurethane, you've got polystyrenes which people sometimes say styrofoam styrofoam is is really not styrofoam is a trade name for a type of polystyrene and it's a, it's an extruded polystyrene it's kind of what you see with it clamshell uh, containers for food and things like that that's a, it's like Kleenex it's a trade name it's not a type of foam for our uses EPS is expanded polystyrene it's that bead foam that we see in different and, then, and in those applications there's many different types of Foams. There's just some garden variety beaded foam that you would use for cutting, uh, you know, with a hot wire coolers and things like that. And then there's formulations that have the beads are more fused together, which is good for surfing. You know, the beads are tighter together. And then there's some types of EPS that are compression molded in molds, just like, you know, regular polyurethane foam you know u.s blanks does it marco people like that and those are fantastic blanks you know they're the best of both worlds so in the hot wire 
cutting situation. You have a giant block of foam, basically, and a hot wire that cuts it into the blank size that you yeah, want. Yeah, and there's templates for it that but, they follow. But that big block was also just molded together, right? It's in probably it's just a, bunch a larger of, It's mold. a bunch of those, um, those polystyrene pellets that are smelted together, and, I, and they're blown with different gases. Some of them are some of them are innocuous. Some of them, I don't know. I've had some weird headaches from them oh, really? in, a, in an enclosed shaping room. But So the um, molded or the fused EPS that you're talking about is also a molded. It's just a much smaller area that they're molding yeah, the, it in, the com- like a six-foot Compression foot molded ones. That, right. that's, that's just, they're blown just like regular polyurethane blanks. They're just using a different material. So it's a tighter cell structure than the larger yeah. block. And they finish, yeah, they're, they're way tighter, and they come in blanks that are just not, they're not just raw, you know, slab cut like you see a lot of foams. They're not just cut with a hot wire. They're molded for a particular blank, and they can, the, the rockers can be altered. Oh. And uh, and they also they tool and finish a lot better than a lot of the beads bead foams the more garden variety bead foams to the point where you don't even need to spackle them a lot of EPSs or uh, you usually have to go in there and do some sort of a slurry of a, of, a, of epoxy resin and micro balloons or some sort of lightweight spackling like you'd use for your wall just to fill in all the voids and uh, so it's a process there right. too yeah so but, the fused EPS or the tighter fused EPS finishes more similarly to polyurethane well relative to i mean it doesn't finish quite as creamy and nice it's not that you know the cadillac of foams like i was saying the poly polyurethane is but it is tighter cell it's, structure. it's way tighter and it can be dealt with and it can be screened and sanded and glassed like like i said cosmetically it'll finish a lot closer to a polyurethane blank and those things can be the same density the block cut eps and the fused eps it's just tighter cell structure. Yeah, they'll they will, yeah they'll have you know one point five pound, and then they'll have you know like a two point one or something like that. But yeah, the com- the compression molded one's always just going to be, I mean the weight's going to be there, but it's still going to be a better foam. Just the cell structure is yeah. the only difference essentially. Yeah, it's 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 tighter it's a lot fusion. better, and it's, and it's probably harder for the air to communicate through the entire structure too. Yeah, you know if it gets open or if it sucks in water. So we were talking about. Asian manufactured surfboards. Let's talk about the economics of that or why that, why surfboard manufacturing was ever outsourced in the first place. Well, it was outsourced because of the uh, things just get too expensive to make here. Workmanship gets expensive. And like in California example, like with Clark Foam shutting down, it's not a very business-friendly state. We started getting all these environmental regulations and things with fire codes and things with manufacturing, things with chemicals, and you know, all to the good. But what's what's sorry about this is that we've dumped it on other people. We've dumped it in places where there are no regula- regulations. We don't know where the raw materials are. Where's the resin and foams coming from? And I just, I when I was there, I would see foam tailings just they just take it and dump it in the field. There's, uh, they don't have. Yeah, you know, like medical stations at these places, to if someone gets in an industrial accident or gets chemicals in their eyes or something, it's 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 there because it's cheap and there's no regulations. So that's a good point. I we talked off air about not wanting to vilify something just because it's made in a different country, and I was having a conversation with a friend recently who was like. You know, if those boards in Asia are manufactured by, let's say, unskilled um, laborers, and in the example, he was actually referencing a specific example 
of an image that he saw, a photograph that he saw of a factory there, and it was a bunch of um, Thai women yeah. manufacturing surfboards, right? And there's a lot of turnover in that factory, so they're you know they're not skilled laborers. They've been there for three months or whatever, and in three months from now there might be somebody else. And his argument was, well, I don't feel like you know the Californian. Uh, middle-aged white guy deserves a job any more than that Thai woman deserves a job. They're both just humans and they both deserve to work if they're willing to work. So what is the difference? But I think your point that you make is kind of an important point, which is what are the regulations and standards of that country? And are the factories being held to those standards is a concern? No, there's, well, there's not. And like my, obviously I was only there for once, but I've read a lot about, you know, what it's like what things what what happens in china but but seeing it firsthand it was struck with it was a way of like wow this is like looking at the eastern seaboard in 1910 it was like seeing america after the gilded age and into the you know industrial revolution you were seeing things that were it was unbelievable yeah just and uh unbelievably irresponsible no just it's that part of their history or their their uh you know story arc as a nation is just where we were they're an emerging nation it's like i don't sit in judgment i just went and i saw it and uh it was it was pretty amazing to see how rudimentary it was but as a historian some of the i just all it did was remind me of what america would have been like during like new york sweatshops in 1910 or 1920 when child labor and but but when you talk about like these women working there and then moving on three months, why are they moving on? Like I've, a lot of times there's stories of where people come in and they get trained and they are skilled workers, but they learn something and they get headhunted. They go to another place right. that, that hires them at a better wage or maybe they're sick of, they want to go home. They want to be closer to home. If it's maybe they get uh, sensitive to epoxy and they have to be rotated into something else or go do something else. But um, I found that they were, you know, I was impressed with how hardworking and how dedicated and how skilled they actually were. But that said, I went through the factory we were using and did a workstation by workstation, uh, you know, talk and, and, you know, kind of an assay on everything. And it was astonishing because we here in California or Hawaii or France or Australia, we have a, a certain baseline of like a surfboard industry. It's all there. So we kind of all know like roughly how surfboards are built, but they didn't. And uh, what was interesting is we had a, a, at this factory that made our stand-up boards, we had the workforce to get together for a meet and greet, and there was like a question and answer, and one of the, uh, one of the workers raised his hand and through an interpreter asked my partner, Todd Bradley, like how, you know, how long do these, uh, you know, how many times or how long do you, you know, you, like big-nosed foreign devils use these things, you know? And Todd goes, well, you know, a good, well-made surfboard can last, you know, 30, 40 years. And they all just started laughing. And he just turned and interpreted, like, what? And he goes, oh, he thought, they thought that you just, you know, you wealthy Americans just use these things a couple times and throw them away. So that gets to this point of, like, with Greg Martz talking about how important it is for people that work on surfboards, especially in glassing, to, to surf and understand. Like, they had no idea what these things were for. I mean, some of the people there did, but... So what I did in some of the stages that I saw that were going wrong, especially sanding and uh, all these other things, at every step of the way there was things that needed to be done. But I had them find a, a broken board and then cut a cross section out of it. 
so that you could see a slice of the foam core and the, like what you see in trade shows, people showing how their boards are built. And I just went and showed them, look, this is the margins you guys are working with. This is what we do. This is the forces that are put on it. And uh, they're just building these things. They don't know. Yeah. There was guys in there that were shaping a couple big 14, 12, 14 foot race boards, start to finish out of EPS using a hot wire and planers that weren't even, you know, that I wouldn't even use on a door here. And, and they're doing those all day. You know, wearing bathroom slippers, you know, and they weigh like 100 pounds and everything. I mean, it's it's definitely a different, but that's why those are board, done there. We could do that here, and I think we will eventually. I think that at some point the law of diminishing returns is going to see that with the cost of shipping and political things and some of the, the QC issues that you start to see over there when they lose that skilled workforce um, and they, they go off into other things, is it, it'll end up being cheaper and better just to make them here. You go to a business-friendly county or state here and right. and you set up you bring the expertise and you start making those boards here because for a lot of types of surfboards it's a good way to build boards right so but what i take issue to is that people that point fingers at pop-outs not understanding that there really aren't any pop-outs or are pointing fingers at that and you have people here that are masquerading as hand shapers groovy backyard shapers but they're not they're just doing you know they're just doing everything off of a computer Right. But they're trying to masquerade as, you know, the real thing. So we should probably get backstory on C4 Waterman's because you've referenced it. Yeah. What was it? What was your objective at the time? Well, in, the, people had always been doing stand-up paddling in, in Hawaii for a long time. The, the Achoi brothers and a lot of the Beach Boys in Waikiki, people going back, even, you know, to the 40s. Uh, you know, the Beach Boys used to go out on their oversized tandem boards uh, with an oversized, like, canoe paddle and be able to paddle out with a camera around their neck and a cigarette behind their ear and take pictures of the tourists without getting wet. But it, so people had always done it. Laird Hamilton and Dave Kalama were doing it on tandem boards on Maui, you know, in the early to mid-90s. But um, Laird Hamilton had told my partner, Brian Kealana, about how good it was as a fitness exercise for toe surfing and foil boarding. And so Brian got a paddle, and this is 2002, and, but in within six months, he turned it into a sport. It had just been steady state, nothing had been done, and within six months, he was already down from 12.6 by 30 inch wide to 10 foot by 28 carbon paddles, doing all the, all, everything that you see out there, guys doing stand-up, Brian invented that at Makaha. And, uh, so we, he was the Johnny Appleseed of it, and I was just fortunate enough to be there to help start building those boards. And then the racing and the racing, thi- the racing and the open ocean stuff was 100%. That came entirely from us. That was a vision that Brian and Todd had to form a regatta class thing of downwind uh, open ocean racing in Hawaii that would take its place alongside outrigger canoe and, and prone paddle boards. You said earlier you couldn't get anybody to build those oh, boards for you. And we that's were trying to build these things. China. It was what? right at the tail end of Clark Foam being in business. So, well, no one wanted to, people, you'd take these big boards, 10, 11 feet to go, especially some of them when they're EPS, to go get them glass somewhere. And everybody just, no way, we don't want to touch that. So you were shaping them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and shaping. you couldn't find anybody to couldn't glass them? Couldn't find anybody to glass them. Got it. So another guy I was making boards for, Blaine Chambers, got impatient waiting and he started kind of doing his own boards and found a, a network of people that would glass him and I kind of threw in with him 
and started doing boards for him. That was Paddle Surf Hawaii. And so Paddle Surf Hawaii and C4, we were the, the first people actually making boards. And we originally, Blaine Chambers and I wanted just to do it in Hawaii. We didn't want to go the China route like everybody else. And, uh, but at some point, the, the sport caught on. And if, if we didn't do the boards like everybody else, we would have just been left behind, you know? So you find yourself in China. Um, and ultimately, the boards were being manufactured in China. Yeah. You're talking that about was some years later, though. But uh, I, you know, the th- everybody changed their mind after the 2008 slump or recession or depression, or whatever you call it. The surf industry took a dump, and, and stand-up was just right there waiting. Sure. And, it, and it saved that. It basically saved the industry. You know, it did. by having to go through a belt tightening and no, it, no, the it it there all of a sudden right when it, there was a reduced demand for surfboards and wetsuits and rash guards and graphics and everything, all of a sudden stand-up came in. And it just blew it open. Board covers, wetsuits, paddle, everything. All of a sudden, there was this whole new sport that people want, and you could do it anywhere. So it, it totally patched over what would have been a huge downturn for the surf industry. Got it. Hard and soft goods, you know. Um, you were talking about having those meetings with the laborers in the factory and kind of trying to il- illustrate to them details about the actual use of the equipment. Do you feel like you were able able to successfully convey that to them to where they could then be better at their job? Well, what we do is just go through, we would uh, give them a detailed instruction on for each workstation and what to do step by step and get them some video. There's videos of like glassing and shaping, you know, an EPS and epoxy so that they could see. But ultimately at that point, I just felt like, you know, they we're not in the business of teaching them how to make composite structures. They should be, you know, doing it, you know, right. And uh, that was kind of late when the, you know, our company was already facing a lot of challenges. We'd lost a lot. We spent almost all our resources on innovation and marketing and blazing the trails. And then a lot of other people just came in and just, whoop, well, thanks guys. You laid the track. Here's our locomotive, you know? Right, right, right. And that's kind of what happened. Yeah. I'm just curious if with manu- um even U.S.-based manufacturers, U.S.-based surfboard brands that are outsourcing labor, is there a way for them to, um, I don't know, educate those laborers in those countries to build the quality of boards that we're building here in the U.S.? Well, they, but they can, they can build quality. Some of the factories are really good. I'm just talking about some of the ones that I've seen, but the, like the Cobra factory in Thailand, they build very good stuff. You know, it's, uh, and that's but that's a, a different construction. That is that. No, these guys, they were doing this similar things. They were, they were instead of the Divinisil Center, like on our boards, there was other, there was uh, like bamboo veneer, and it was still done in a molded, like under a tremendous, these molds were like 500 pounds each lid. They're, they, everything's done under, under pressure. They're not quite as elaborate as those, as the SurfTech uh, Cobra type thing, but, um, but that's, you know, I would consider that the gold standard for that. But that can be done here. It's, so it's what I'm saying is that it's done because it's all that it's there's cheap labor and no regulations. We just reference everything as outsourced manufacturing, and then sometimes we'll throw the label on of Asian manufacturing. What countries are producing surfboards? What countries are manufacturing surfboards in Asia? Well, I think most I think most countries have some some sort of a beachhead there, but. But see, I'm not talking about outsourcing. I'm, I'm, if we're talking about protecting the domestic industry, I believe, like Gordon Clark did, that 
if the domestic builders here didn't overshape and use better materials and gave the customer a better, more durable product, we wouldn't have to worry about it. And and I and I just take offense that when people say you know pop outs because I they're, they're, I just don't see any pop outs. There's no such thing as a pop out over there. There's people working hard in emerging nations, and if you believe in that kind of globalism or glo global equality, then you just want to think let them have a leg up. You know, it's it's. Yeah. Um, whether it should infiltrate surfboards, it's really up to the consumer by just not buying something that they, just based on price. And a lot of it, what we're trying to do is educate people that are ignorant of the materials and workmanship that go into it. I mean, it's, it's a hot button thing for people about taking jobs away from here. It's, I think we're in a really good position. I think that we're gaining ground on that. And, and yet, it's not to say that those boards are inferior. It's just what's inferior about it, I think, is that the, surf, the surfboard industry was always a cottage industry for people that were actively involved or passionate about the sport. It was a way for them to stay close to the beach, which is harder and harder to do in California, and make a living from something that they love and be around people that, that they're familiar with and everything like that. And, and more and more, it's gone into you know, a different like hypermarket kind of mindset. And, um, and then as surfing got into that, everybody surfs boom, like in the 2003 through the, the crash of the housing thing and everybody surfing was the new yoga that was part of it but now we're starting to see kind of a recession of that and we're kind of coming back and we're seeing you know incredible boutique shapers and glassers uh, that are putting out incredible work with a lot of experimentation it's kind of like the 70s again so i mean i think there's room for it all but it's what really needs to happen is the customer needs to be educated about what how surfboards are made and what you are buying when you're buying something and that you know, if I had a quiver, I would, if I, if I wanted a Donald Takayama, classic D Donald Takayama 9-2, like high-performance longboard, and he's not here to make me one anymore, I would be perfectly fine with getting one of those molded composite ones like that, having it as part of my quiver. But then I would have all my other boards and everything else. But it's all just about diversifying into that. It's, I just don't want to demonize that kind of construction without people understanding it. It's, it's really only there because you're taking advantage of a developing country that has none of the protections that we've come to know and take for granted here since basically like the New Deal. You talked about Greg Martz. Um, part of his requirement when they're hiring a new employee is that they surf. How important is that for a laborer in the manufacturing process? Well, I think he's he's speaking kind of tongue in cheek on that, but I, I, I don't, I don't really think it's. I think it's the culture. Like if you bring in somebody from into a, a glass shop like Waterman's Guild and maybe they don't surf, but if they're around people that do surf and explain things, I think they can learn a particular aspect of the job and do it well. It's all, it's like surfing too. We all need to be indoctrinated by people that were here first, whether it's at a surf break or in, in, this, in the industry or just philosophy and about history of our sport. And I think that indoctrination process has broken down and it has become by default set out to, uh, you know, like the apparel companies and or companies that have high markups on what they do and with their hang tag stuff. Like they, that's kind of who's doing it. The magazines aren't really doing it anymore. And there's not, I don't really see a voice for our elders to indoctrinate people into it and to what value. So. On, a, on that level like in a shop I think if if you have a shop that is working and it's like a big family and there's a lot of knowledge in it I think you can take somebody and adopt somebody that's not from the surfing culture or doesn't surf and teach them what you do and they 
they'd probably do a great job. I don't think it's an, it's an absolute necessity, but I think most people that own glass shops would say they didn't want surfers because they always quit when <laughs> the waves I mean, are good. I mean, there's certainly that. I, I don't think it's specific to surfing in the surf industry. If you have a chef who's passionate about food and wine and loves eating, I have a feeling his dish is going to come out better than the guy who has no passion for it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and no matter what the industry is, a guy who loves numbers, who's an accountant, is going to be better at balancing the books than somebody who's just... Yeah, I think I remember once there was uh, one of Rusty's best, Rusty Priesendorfer's really most prized uh, shapers that did some of his boards prior to the shaping machines a long time ago was a guy that didn't surf. Really? Yeah, yeah, he was fantastic. He just said the guy was the most accurate guy, showed up, worked all day, didn't complain. So I think it's it, it's just, uh, I mean, it's good to have a passion, and, and it's important, but, you know, ideally the, the craft and the trade should be at that cottage industry level, I think. Yeah. I think that's where it finds its best equilibrium, and uh, I think people are happier. I don't think people that would go to a giant consortium that's owned by a parent company that maybe be, you know, bought a surf label and just works in there laying up 30 shortboards or scraping the ridges off 30 blanks a day is going to be as happy as you know all of us really lucky bespoke shapers that get to make boards for people and deal with them it's it's a blessing for me i just met so many cool people really opening up the doors to customers in the last five years yeah I think that's been infused through almost all the conversations I've had with surfboard shapers that it's like the personal relationship with the shaper and especially if you're ordering multiple boards from them over and over and kind of refining that relationship is where the value is at. Um, And it always, it ends up translating in how the board performs as well. But I mean, I've had, you know, those kind of, large mass-produced model made boards from asia i've ridden a few of them they work fine but they're not they've never been the best boards i've had and they've never been the worst boards i've had either yeah you know they're just kind of like they're reliable and they they surf but they're not there's never the element of magic in them either yeah everything works everything in fact that's what i tell people that are shaping their first 10 boards and they're so stage struck about it and i said those will be probably more likely to hit upon something accidentally or otherwise that is a really cool new design wrinkle than than somebody that has shaped 10,000 boards and they're just sterile right they're just too good so i always like looking at funky boards that people surfer shapers do or backyard shapers do because you might you never know when you're just going to hit something interesting right but but that that relationship is important i think i think that's that's really why we all surf i think so to have those whether it's in the water or talking about boards and you know not to put too fine a point on it and politicize surfboards and make it too serious because they're all just for having fun they're all just these little boomerangs that we're carving and throwing and coming back and hey bill made one that does this let's try to improve on that i mean that's all it is but at the same time people are spending a lot of hard-earned money on things so i just think it's important that they're educated on what goes into boards because there's so many myths about it there's myths and i'll be honest there's been what i view as intentional kind of misdirection by a lot of brands yeah well yeah that's not yeah that's more less a construction thing although it can be but i it it's another issue i, I think of 
you know, how we address something like that. Because, like, you know, on one hand, you could say, well, it's the consumer's fault if they fall for it because they're not educated. And the other hand, it's like, like you say, well, what is who's really hurt, you know? I mean, I guess the one thing you could say is that what we'd like is to have more people uh, in the trade, more people learning it. And it's nice to see when you see some of these glass shops, because that's the main thing about having all these people making surfboards here is it's putting people in learning trades. There's kids that are learning how to sand and polish and, you know, laminate and everything. And, and that's that was kind of disappearing for a while. Yeah. Um, what do we have on the horizon? Is there anything in the future in terms of construction materials, technique? People always ask about, well, when I say there's nothing new under the sun, and they say, well, no, come on, it can't be that way. And I'm, well, you know, materials can get, we can get better materials or materials that used to be too exotic or too expensive can start to get more generic and more cheaply made and we can get those. So materials, but design-wise, nothing's really going to change. It's just going to be the dictates of function and fashion and where people want to go on waves and what waves they want to ride. But material-wise, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do think about um, uh, things like uh, trends in surfboard manufacturer like 3D printers or um, that, and, you know, how that might integrate with automation and CNC machines. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be possible to build something like a scale model, like a one-tenth model of something and then just have it scanned and it's, or even chopped up into little like slices and sent overseas or, or, or of course you don't even need to do that like digitally. It just, but it just seems like surfboard design is in danger of going further and further away from just cut and try in the shaping room and more into that. Once it gets to a certain tipping point where it's just so easy and everything just integrates with different machines. And, you know, so where do, where do all these guys that are just getting into it now and are excited about making their own boards and trying all these, you know, cool new things, where do they fit into that? And, and to have all those glass shops like the Waterman's Guilds and other, you know, great uh, glass shops with all that expertise, it's kind of like the submarine manufacturers of the Apollo Project. If you don't keep them going, that expertise runs out and you can't just start it up again. No. So luckily we've been able to keep it alive. But what happens when it doesn't? Right. Then it, then, it, then it probably just goes to guys looking through old books and the internet just figuring out how to do cut laps and how to mix pigments and people doing it in their backyards, which is, which is fine. But, but I'm, I feel good about the domestic industry. Good. You know, I look at the, the example of Japan, the way they were in the surfing craze, especially in the 80s, you know, highly civilized country very technology-minded, into convenience, all their things. But when it comes to some things, they revere craftsmanship. They revere that closeness to nature. I mean, they could uh, mass-produce glass floats or plastic floats for fishing nets, but, they, but there's still a lot of people that do the traditional kind, and those are highly valued, and they have their own maker's marks on it and everything. So I think that a lot of things in America, we've gone that way where we're starting to get more appreciative of craftsmanship and things that are built, you know, small brew type of things. Um, and so it's, it's, it's so much better than I would have predicted 20 years ago or 10 years ago. I Good. couldn't even have imagined being in this place right now where we're seeing all the things we're doing and so many young shapers just doing everything on, without getting sucked into giant, um, you know, big label concerns that are just 
out to just suck them up and make them work in anonymity. Right. Last time we met here at Libertine, you were talking about experimenting with foil boards. Any developments on that front? No, I, I haven't had time to do it much. My friends uh, in Hawaii, or everybody seems to be getting into like off the stand-up platform for for launching the you know getting the foil and everybody's just writing shorter boards I and mean, some of the kids are writing super super short boards like below four feet even and uh, I think that the rationale behind that is that you want to feel like you're surfing or flying the foil rather than a board and then this big board and somewhere under there is a foil and uh, but you've seen some pretty amazing stuff I mean guys are doing incredible surfing on it so I mean they're really isn't a need for the board right other than just well you have to stand on something and you, have, you if you're not getting towed in then you have to have some sort of a, a paddling yeah you have to have some sort of a launch ramp and the board yeah. is catching the wave yeah but uh but once you're up and riding there's no need for excess right no it's it's a detriment because what you what you want is more sensitivity with yeah. feeling that foil because at that point you're really just standing on a model airplane upside down an oversized model airplane and it's doing the same things right it's that's what's cool about it it's a lot like flying yeah but you know once again like a lot of things like toe-in surfing even like stand-up surfing it ideally it spreads people out and i'm sure there'll be guys taking foil boards out in crowded breaks just like every like long boards and stand-up boards and and they'll probably hurt people but most people are probably going to just spread out into unused territory right but how we're going to build those boards, uh, I mean, it's, it's an exciting time. I, I, I do think that, that sometimes, like, like some of the 3D printing things, if that gets to be... Um, somebody might just happen upon that, that thing that I was telling you about, like with Gordon Clark accidentally discovering something that might put us all out of, out of work, you know? The 3D printing thing is really interesting because you can do one-offs with that. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to put a ton of R&D into a model, right. and manufacturing, and blah, blah, blah. No, you just do one-off. Yeah, and that's, that's what's interesting because anything that gets you closer to changing design and altering exactly. design swell to swell is kind of where you want to go. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an exciting time. It's, uh, I think people are still going to – I mean, it's, when you think about it, it's amazing. And in this day and age – with all the assaults on tradition with you know the internet social media and everything else that there's still people that are can order a raw foam blank from a company in southern california and get it shipped up analog in a truck and then they go out and shape it to a custom order sheet and it's hand glassed and hand sanded and hand polished and golf clubs and snowboards aren't made like that it's tennis rackets aren't made like that skis aren't made it's it's pretty amazing that it's still there and maybe it says something about surfers desire for to be unique after all a stick a stone it's the end of the road it's feeling alone it's the weight of your load it's a sliver of glass it's life it's the sun it's night it's death it's a knife it's a gun a flower that blooms a fox in the brush a nut in the wood the song of a thrush the mystery of life the steps in the hall the sound of the wind and the waterfall it's the moon floating free it's the curve of the slope it's an N, it's a B, it's a reason for hope. And the riverbank sings of the waters of March. It's the promise of spring, it's the joy in your heart. 
And that concludes On Boards with Dave Parmenter, Doug Fletcher of the Santa Cruz Board Builders Guild, and Ryan Martz of the Waterman's Guild. Thank you to Channel Islands for donating the rocket-wide built-in spine tech to support this series. Thank you to you, the listeners, for supporting in the form of financial donations and sharing this show with friends. You can find images and links to everything that we discussed in this series on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also find our entire archive of shows, three previous interviews with Dave Parmenter prior to this series, interviews with other board builders like Mickey Munoz, Eric Arakawa, Tom Parrish, John Pizel, as well as other surf luminaries like Aaron Chang, Todd Glazer, Jamie Brissick, Matt Warshaw, Steve Pesman. It is all available for free. I am so done talking about board building. I'm recording this final send-off from Maui, so you could probably hear the uh, wind in the trees and animals in the background of uh, my intro and outro for this episode. I am headed off to the beach to go surfing repeatedly, but I'll record a couple of shows while I'm here. I'll publish something for you next week. Until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. de toco, é um pouco sozinho, é uma cobra e um pau, é João e José é um espinho na mão é um corte no pé são as águas de março fechando o verão e a promessa de vida no teu coração a stick, a stone, it's the end of the road, the stump of a tree, it's a frog, it's a toad, a sigh, a breath a walk, a run a life, a Death, the rain, the sun, and the riverbank sings of the waters of March. It's the promise of life, it's the joy in your heart. São as águas de março fechando o verão, e a promessa de vida no teu coração. É pau, é pedra, é o fim do caminho, é um resto de toco, é um pouco sozinho. É pau, é pedra, é o fim do caminho, resto de toco. Foco sozinho, oh, Pedro, fim do caminho, resto de toco.